Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. The Oxford Canadian Dictionary defines mythos as 1. A myth or body of myths, and 2. A narrative theme or pattern. Presumptuous though it may be to try improving upon the wisdom of the Oxford Canadian Dictionary, I have a third meaning to venture. A mythos is a modern fiction that does the work of myth. There are plenty of modern fictions that take quasi-mythic forms. Pretty much any superhero story does. But while Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos is mythic in the sense that it is full of gods and diamonds, it is a mythos because it can act upon the world as myths do. Myths don't merely represent a world to our passive minds. They enlist our minds in making a world real. Myths attract followers, and while the Cthulhu mythos began life as Lovecraft's invention, his creations have been elaborated by August Derleth and many others. Myths blur the line between the real and the imaginary. What begins in the collective imagination ends up escaping into the world. Lovecraft's fictional Necronomicon, for example, has spawned several real grimoires. A myth cannot deliver its psychic payload unless it is, to some extent, believed. There is always something hyperstitional about myths. The more than ordinary psychic investment they demand is paid off in their transformation of reality. You might object that myths can only affect transformations in your mind, not reality. I might retort by saying that a myth is precisely that which reveals an intimate relationship between mind and reality that goes far beyond what we moderns conceive to be possible. A modern fiction that possesses this pre-modern power of realizing the irreal is what I mean by a mythos. And the great mythos of our times is, I believe, the Twin Peaks saga that David Lynch and Mark Frost have spun out over three seasons of a TV series, along with a feature film, Fire Walk With Me, and several books, all of which have been drawn into an ever-expanding web of paratexts by a host of secondary and tertiary creators, including, I suppose, J.F. and me. Weird Studies was born in the wake of the 2017 appearance of Twin Peaks Season 3, also called Twin Peaks The Return, And from the very beginning, it has shadowed and informed our own developing philosophy. Our first full episode, Garmin Bosia, proposed that the Twin Peaks mythos could serve as a fictional map to the so-called real world. An all-pervading existential fear of impending species extinction is the emotional signature of our age. And in that first episode, we suggested that the Twin Peaks mythos could allow us to theorize this fear and thereby gain cognitive purchase on something that seems to draw power from our inability to think clearly about it. 
In this episode, we revisit Twin Peaks Season 3 for the first time in more than five years. And in the conversation that follows, you will hear us discovering other affordances of the Twin Peaks mythos. And that project of thinking about and with the Twin Peaks mythos will continue this month in the online view-along course that JF and I are hosting on NeuroLearning, which you'll hear more about in what follows. Here's one more announcement. From Thursday, July 27, through Saturday, July 29, your boys will be making the scene at the 2023 Lilydale Symposium, the brainchild of visionary photographer Shannon Taggart. You will find a link to the program in our show notes. JF and I will be kicking things off with a live show on Thursday evening, and we'll each do solo talks on Friday and Saturday. We are honored to be part of an amazingly varied and exciting program of speakers, and best of all, Brian Buckman, the mad genius of Zymergy at Illuminated Brewworks, will be bringing back Weird Studies Black IPA for the event. We are really excited about this symposium, and we hope that we will see some of you in upstate New York next month. Okay, on with the show. I felt that I needed some time on this. I'm glad that we didn't try to record an episode on this back in 2018 when we were still flushed with the fresh experience of having watched season three in its entirety. Uh, well, I actually don't know if you watched it live. I watched it live. And so for me, my first viewing of it was very much tied up with the experience of watching it as a series of cliffhangers each week you would be thrown a whole bunch of new things to interpret and make sense of. And, you know, my son and wife and I would spend the next week in feverish speculation about what we had just seen, what it all meant, and where we might be going from here. So the first time I watched this, it was very much in a certain flow of irreversible time, whereas watching it again after, you know, five years, coming back to it, you know, there's a bunch of stuff I'd forgotten, but I know all the basic plot points where it's all headed. My relationship to it was quite different mm -hmm. and I responded emotionally different, different things stuck out to me and, and some, and to be honest, some things also kind of wore on my patience, which were not the things that set me aback the first time. So I'm looking forward to talking about that aspect of it, just like what it's like to revisit this um, from a perspective where I feel a little bit more prepared to do some kind of justice to it on the show. Um, how did you feel rewatching it? I binged it the first time as well. So I've watched it twice, both times, binging it. So the first mm. time, however, was a reasonable binge. Uh, Leslie and I watched it over a period of maybe three weeks, four weeks. So several episodes a week kind of thing. Because there are 18 episodes for those of you who haven't watched it yet. Uh, I have something to say about that too, about spoilers and whatnot in a second. Oh, do we need to say that we're going to spoil the ever-living fuck out of the yeah, show? Yeah, we're going to spoil the show. But that shouldn't stop you either from listening to this or watching Twin Peaks if you haven't yet. One thing I'd like to get to today 
is what is it about Twin Peaks as a phenomenon? You know, like season three is our focus, but as a whole, as a kind of artistic gesture, what does it represent? As a mythos. As a mythos, exactly. Because, you know, the day after this comes out next week, uh, so the 8th of June, we're going to be starting a series of view-alongs uh, on Neural Learning with people who are fans of Twin Peaks. I don't know who's joining. Are they? Yeah, We'll be watching shows together, commenting in real time on the shows as they play, and then having group discussions afterwards. We'll do that over a period of four weeks. So we'll be developing, surely, a lot of the ideas that we're going to be presenting today. So if you like what you hear today, you may be interested in joining that. Uh, and you can do that by going to neurolearning.com. Okay. Anyways, my point was uh, I binged it twice. First time was a reasonable binge. So I was, and, and I was watching it with Leslie. So we were having those discussions. Um, there's something magical about uh, being subjected to the periodic release of new material yeah. that really draws you into the eventual dimension of a, of a show. It's like you're participating in this with other people. You don't get that when you're binging. And then I watched it. Uh, last I started last weekend and watched the entire thing over four days. So that's uh, hardcore. Yeah, that was that is an unreasonable binge. Unreasonable binge, but it was good. Yeah, I was fully immersed, let's say, <laughs> in that world. And again, uh, I found uh, that my reaction was very different. So similar to you, what I love about Twin Peaks, and this goes all the way back to season one. What I love about Twin Peaks in, in general as a project is its courage and its willingness to do things that one does not do, you know? Um, right. So, and again, I was really impressed with that because there are some, some of those episodes. I mean, even calling them, they're not called episodes. First, they're called parts because essentially right. this is an 18 hour feature film. And it really does yep. feel that way. Um, some scenes are just am amazingly um they just testify to a kind of visionary power in Lynch that I didn't know was still in him. Yeah. Like I was really impressed that at his age, he could still generate something like this. So very impressed with it and very interested in discussing it. Well, talking about age, I think is actually kind of to the point. It's an important thing to bring up, not as a biographical detail necessarily, uh, you know, the way people talk about it is like, ah, David Lynch still got it, which is true. He clearly does still got it. Yeah. Um, or people saying like, oh, for a man that age to keep up such a brutal shooting schedule, 140 day schedule where he was pulling 12 hour, 18 hour days, uh, impressive feat for a person of any age, uh, much less a man in his seventies. But I want to move away from just the kind of biographical fact of it to the idea of late style yeah because that was something that hit me more strongly this time watching it the feeling not just that it is a sort of happenstance of biography that david lynch happened to create this in his 70s but the idea that age actually is an integral part of the expression of the thing the concept of late style comes especially from music and it comes especially from Ludwig van Beethoven's music. So, you know, Beethoven occupies a unique place in music history as a composer who not only composed music of unprecedented size and power and emotional range, et cetera, but also 
changing somewhat the idea of what a composer is, the idea that a composer is something like a painter or a poet in tones uh, or an architect in tones, somebody building durable edifices that once erected must be contended with by all succeeding generation of artists. That's a particularly German 19th century way to view things, but that way of viewing things, however, led to a very careful kind of uh, examination of Beethoven's creative biography, his output, and the extrapolation from that of almost metaphysical principles. The idea, okay, here's an artist whose art could be divided into three periods, the early, middle, and late, Uh, the early period being almost, I don't want to say a journeyman period, but a period of absorbing the styles of predecessors, Mozart and Haydn and Bach and others. Uh, The middle period, often called the heroic period, a period where Beethoven's style centers around a lot of the things we think of as classic Beethoven, the monumental size and uh, grandeur of some of his gestures, the sense of heightened conflict and storm and stress. And then the late period. And the late period is the enigmatic period. It's the period about which people have the fewest defined clear things to say. A general feeling that in his late works, Beethoven didn't move beyond all of the earlier things, that all of the earlier things still remained there, like the rings of a tree remain as a kind of a mark of its growth and process, but that in old age, Beethoven reconfigured them in a way that's hard to put in words, but these different pieces subsisting in new and heretofore unconsidered ways. This is late style, the idea that lateness, biographical lateness, being old, or perhaps other kinds of belatedness, and we could talk about this, that that would leave its trace in artistic style, and that that artistic style would be to some extent enigmatic, and unraveling the enigma of the individual artist's late style and unraveling the enigma of late style as such would be a kind of an intellectual project and problem. You know, the three style period narrative I just gave you is from certain musicological points of view, oversimplified, perhaps just a myth. However, it is also a myth in the sense of being a kind of an archetypal story that can apply to really all artists. And from that point of view, this idea of late style goes from being something peculiar to Beethoven to being just almost a koan in the study of art, understanding lateness. Lateness is a thing, and I've seen many people try to debunk the idea of late style as a sentimental affectation of 19th century German music historiography. But the back of my hand to that, I think that late style is a thing. I don't exactly know what I mean by it. But I think it is not just a biographical happenstance that Twin Peaks Season 3 was created by an old man. I think that there is a lateness to Twin Peaks Season 3 that is crucial to understanding what's going on in it. At least that's my feeling. Sorry, I've been, I've been sermonizing for a while here. Do you have any response to this? Yeah, no, I mean, we, we've talked about late style, and I, I personally have always, even before I knew that this was an academic notion, because I came to me by way of you, I had a sense of it. It's obvious uh, when you look at the late works of any artist that there's a change of tone. There's a kind of autumnal quality sets in. There's obviously the artist 
preparing him or herself for death. And there are new questions that arise. You know, Deleuze writes beautifully about late style in his book on philosophy. He doesn't call it that. But at the beginning, he says, you know, the question, what is philosophy, is a question that should be reserved for old age. When we were young, we were too busy doing philosophy to ask ourselves the question, what is philosophy? And I think late style has something to do with a kind of introspective mood in which one looks at what one has been doing all this time. And simply by doing that, they raise new questions, irresolvable questions that then inject a kind of note of mystery to the work. It participates in the mystery of that stage of life, you know, and um, I've always been drawn to it. In fact, I tend to start with late works when I discover new artists. That's my instinct. Uh, the first Deleuze book I ever read was What is Philosophy? Um, the first Beckett I read were his, his final, almost incoherent poems. Um, I just love starting at the end. In a way, there's an advantage to starting at the end than going back to the beginning when you have a full body of work. It gives you a key to the whole thing. And so, yeah, I, and I see, it in, I see it in this. I mean, I thought that Lynch was done after uh, Inland Empire, which I thought was not a great movie. Um, hmm. but to see him suddenly reappear with this and again, with that tone of late style, I mean, especially in the last episode of the return, where I think is late style to a T because the last episode of, of season three has none of the quirky weirdness that we've come to expect from David Lynch. It's almost tediously banal and straight. It's just filming actors. Like most of the, the big chunk of the show is spent just like sitting in a car, driving at night, saying nothing. And yet it's in that episode that the peculiar Lynchian affect that haunts all of, of Lynch's work is most powerfully felt, I think. It is the weirdest of the episodes, the most disconcerting, the most distressing, the one that gives you an idea of what it is I think Lynch is getting at in his work in terms of pointing us to the sheer unknowability of reality. I find that that episode nails it and it does it without using any of the, the, the superficial, you know, classic tricks we expect from Lynch, like, uh, like dancing Lil and that sort of thing. Um, right. You know, it, it doesn't need any of that. It just accomplishes it with just a few gestures, like a few strokes of ink on a white page. Like there's just no, yeah. nothing else is required. And yet, boom, you feel it. And that scream at the end. I think that's one aspect of late style that I think anybody who's thought much about it would probably agree that the sense of, you know, presenting the core of an expression, an expression, a style we've all come to know and love, or at least have wrestled with, but the idea that is being presented in somehow a purified and um, perhaps reduced form, something reduced to its essence, as you say, a few strokes on a white piece of paper. Yeah. That's definitely part of it. I'll tell you something else that I think is a part of it, which is also the sense of the different discordant parts of existence held in suspension. You know, if we're thinking about that Beethovenian three-period pattern, story as an archetype, not something necessarily uniquely associated with Beethoven, but as an archetype in the life of creative figures generally, and perhaps just human beings generally, like the old four ages of man concept, you know, the cyclical understanding of human beings. You start off as a child, then a young person abroad in the world, an older 
more mature person and then an old person uh, and the old person and the infant are in a weird way sort of connected. Mm -hmm. um, the position from old age is one in which those different parts are looked back upon exactly yeah. with perhaps an enigmatic gaze. Uh, certainly, though, a gaze that, however colored with bitterness and regret, also accepts that it all happened mm -hmm. and that all of these are unerasable parts of a self. Late style gives you the feeling of somebody picking through the bits and pieces of a self as it has been serially presented over many decades. You know, if you're thinking about that middle part of life, the middle period, the heroic period, it's all about your projects and designs and the parts of your life exist for you. The meaning for them has entirely to do with the degree to which they help you in your projects, uh, their, their instrumentality. But I think with the advancing of age, a lot of that falls away, but you are left with the actuality of a life that's been lived. One of the most emotionally intense scenes in the entire series, I think it's in part six, where Richard Horn, having met with Red, the drug dealer, who humiliates him, he's furious and he's speeding in this big truck and he hits a small child and kills him. That's a very hard scene to watch. But what I'd forgotten was that the preceding scene, just a moment before that happens, is Carl Rod, played by Harry Dean Stanton, one of David Lynch's oldest and dearest friends, and one of many people who died shortly after the making of this series. Uh, Carl Rod has taken a bus into Twin Peaks from the Fat Trout Trailer Park, and he's ancient, he's in his 90s, and he's sitting on a park bench and he's just sort of looking up at the trees in the blue sky and feeling the breeze in his hair. And it's a glorious, beautiful moment. And then this child is brutally killed in front of him in the next scene. And he approaches the grieving mother with simple kindness and the camera lingers on his face and he takes it all in. And what I'm trying to say is like late style is the view from Carl's eyes, the wonder and the terror and the pity of it all. Yeah. Sitting on the park bench and cradling a dead child in his arms. Yeah. That's late style. Agreed. And, and, there, and just to zoom out a little bit uh, from the experience of artistic creators for a second and just look kind of like at universal human experience. I imagine sometimes like a homicide detective who spent his entire career, let's, I'm imagining a, a good cop here, someone who went in with the right reasons to try to make the world a little better, and then just retiring and on their last day of work, looking at the desk and looking at the pile of unresolved cases, stepping out of the room and going, I've left the world exactly as I found it. Like all of my work hasn't changed a thing. And there's something about that scene where Carl, who is the owner of the trailer park in Twin Peaks, is sitting there kind of basking in the simple beauty of the world. And then that happens in front of him, reminding him that, I don't know, there's something about the world just continuing on its way, despite the fact that you're having this little moment where things look like they're resolving in this beautiful, simple, poetic moment, but suddenly the shit comes back. It's Hard. just like, it's like, and, and the only solution at that point, and this is what you see Carl do in the subsequent episodes is detach yourself from it completely. 
or be continue to be the person that you'd wish everyone the world would be richard horn would be so like there's a disappointment in late style i think it's often a part of it not just regret mm. at one's own bad decisions and one's own mistakes but also disappointment there's a feeling we have when we're as you know those of us who are artists but also in all kinds of professions and vocations that that the world will be better after this, <laughs> that my designs yeah. happen to be what the world needs. And if, right. I, if I'm just given the means of realizing this, it will make the world a better place. But of course, we always leave the world in the state we found it. The world is the world, you know, and this is something I feel very strongly in this series. There is goodness in the world. There's always goodness in Lynch. We can't understate that. He reserves a special place for the good, for, for love. It's very true. But it is like a lotus sunk into the depths of a marsh. It, it is, it, it, it's, it's a constant struggle of the light against the darkness. Something Manichaean about Lynch that I really like, but it's not an easy Manichaeanism. It's subtle. You got to dig yourself out of, of the, the shit. shit. Exactly. There we go. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> I want to say on this go round... I found myself identifying with Dr. Amp a lot. The big conspiracy theorist? Being a, a, a ranting content provider. Yeah, exactly. Which is not what I was. The first time I watched this was in 2017, and you and I were making preparations to do weird studies. That's we right. We were ramping up to it, but we hadn't done it yet. And a lot can change in five years. Yeah, Lawrence Jacoby is... Uh, radio broadcast, like a small, I don't know. No, he's actually, uh, he's got some kind of YouTube channel um, yeah. in, in, in Twin Peaks and he spouts his various theories. Uh, Conspiracy theories. It's, it's, his, it was, his furious spite at the world. Yeah. At, at the government, at the corporations, at everything. The fucks are at it again. <laughs> That's like what he always says. I yeah. Like I, I, I like him too. It was interesting to notice how, the framing of those scenes has changed in the last five years that, you know, in 2017, that sort of character wasn't as problematized as they are today. Yeah. And now we would look at him and be like, oh shit, Alex Jones. Right. But I think it's important not to think of Alex Jones when you see Dr. Amp, because that ain't what Dr. Amp is. He's a basically benevolent guy. Weird dude, still wearing those bicolored glasses, now living in a trailer high atop Whitetail Peak, I think. Yeah. He lives in the woods. He's a man of mystery. Very old, but still keeping it real and still painting his shovels. That's like the first vignette of Twin Peaks we see is, is him he's, taking possession of a load of shovels. He's how I, I imagine Eric Davis in his retirement. <laughs> real West Coaster.
So when, when we decided to do this, uh, I gave some thought to who I'm imagining us speaking to, because Twin Peaks is, it's a big project. You know, if you want to get on top of it, you've got a lot, many, many hours of watching to do. Some people have done that. Uh, some people listening to this have watched every episode of Twin Peaks, maybe more than once. Uh, surely some of you have watched it much more than we have. There's a whole community around Twin Peaks, and there's no shortage of theories about what means what and what it all signifies. And I don't know how deep into those weeds we want to be on this show. Then I imagine people who have watched some Twin Peaks, or maybe all of it, but haven't revisited it. And then I'm imagining people who haven't watched it at all, but have kind of just imbibed much of it through osmosis because of the culture. And so I'm trying to hit the right note here. And I'm, I'm saying that by way of trying to find a way, like what comes next in their conversation. I would like to talk about Twin Peaks as a whole, just for a second. Yeah. Um, we just had a Dueling Banjos exchange on Patreon, available to anyone at the readers tier or higher um, uh, about Twin Peaks. For the price of a bad cup of coffee a right. month. $3 a month. I like our dueling banjos thing. It's like, it's the thing where one of us leads off with a short post and the other piggybacks onto that. Mm -hmm. I always find those super fun. Anyway, sorry, you were, you were going to say. So one of my observations on this rewatch was that Twin Peaks is closely paralleled by the X-Files, right? So Twin Peaks mm -hmm. and the X-Files both come out around the same time in the late 80s, early 90s. Both feature a special FBI task force whose mandate is to investigate strange phenomena, stuff that regular, ordinary law enforcement can't handle. And both end up proposing that there are people in positions of power who know a lot more about what's going on in reality than we do but who don't understand what they know at all. <laughs> so the difference between the two shows is that, whereas The X-Files, what it does is it materializes all these tropes from Pulp Fiction. So in X-Files, you'll have like a show about a vampire, a show about a werewolf, a show about a bunch of shows about aliens. Uh, the daimons, the entities are kind of reified in their classic cultural containers. The vampire is a vampire. The, the Frankenstein monster is a Frankenstein monster. The Sasquatch is a Sasquatch. In Twin Peaks, you'll get a lot of the visual cues that might elicit, you know, thoughts about, oh, we're being preyed upon by vampires or aliens. But the show avoids reifying the entities. It keeps them in a state of unknowable suspense, such that it becomes much more real in that way. The feeling of watching Twin Peaks is much closer to what it's like to experience things like this than X-Files is. Hmm. So the way that I put it in the post was that whereas X-Files is a show about reality being invaded by fictions, vampires, all these kind of fictional yeah. tropes, Twin Peaks is a soap opera, i.e. a fiction, yeah. an yeah. obvious fiction, invaded by something real, real in the sense that it's unnameable, irreducible to any of our categories, impossible to simply metabolize in an intellectual paradigm, such that we can then say that we understand it. 
I just found that in two interesting ways of approaching the same problem, i.e. the problem of the weird, as it presents itself to us now today. Yeah. Well, I like that a lot. And I wrote a response to it that I just published before we started talking. And one thing I like about it is like you're nailing a sort of, I don't want to say ambient weirdness, Mm-hmm. But but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, and don't get me wrong. I fucking love The X-House. I've been rewatching Same here. It. Um, Same here. I mean, I enjoyed it back in the 90s when it was on the first time. Yeah, I want to say, I don't mean this as a criticism of X-Files. No, Just... no. We're talking about genre and how genres work, right? Yeah. And there's something interesting about Twin Peaks, which is that it does genre. I mean, like X-Files does genre you know, monster of the week, weird detective stuff. You know, there's a precedent for that in Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, But Twin Peaks does something really interesting with genre, which is like everything is always already genre, some kind of genre. Everything is already some kind of soap opera. So the example I gave in my response is the wonderful scene where Gordon is drinking a fine Bordeaux with a French woman. Yes. And... Albert has to come by and lay something on him. And Albert's like, she's going to have to wait outside while I talk to you about this, which is an ordinary sort of plot beat that happens within the reality of the show. So if we're watching Twin Peaks, you say, what's reality? We're like, well, reality is the thing where Gordon Cole drinks his wine. Reality is the thing where Bill Hastings is arrested, et cetera, et cetera. We can enumerate all of the things that happen in quote unquote reality. And then the stuff that happens in that mauve zone that Cooper passes through on his way out of the lodge or the lodge lodge, or any number of these kind of weird intermediate imaginal spaces. We're like, well, that's not reality. That's some other reality. Right. And so we can assert a kind of hierarchy of realities. Which doesn't mean that we're discounting what happens in the lodge or whatever. We just acknowledge that it's not real in the same sense as the world where Gordon Cole sips his fine Bordeaux. Yeah. But the problem with that is that that reality is always constituted from these crazy pulp tropes and these figures from a fevered pulp imagination. So like in my little thing that I wrote, I was like, you know, the French woman is what you would get if we were in a parallel reality where Maria Montez ended up starring in an American in Paris. Exactly. Like utterly over the top Frenchiness. <laughs> French sexiness. And it just, yeah. and, and you know, for those who haven't seen it, this simple scene where Albert asks Gordon Cole, these are two FBI agents. Albert asks Gordon Cole to, um, to ask his lady friend to leave the room so that they can have a private conversation. The process of this woman leaving the room is about, it's, I think it's a solid five minutes. It takes a long time. It takes a long time for her to get up and leave the room. And it's like just putting on her shoes is this whole production involving her lifting her leg up to the ceiling yeah. with a saucy <laughs> glance to Gordon. And this is the thing that Twin Peaks does all the time. You know, even going back to season one, the scenes of everyday life are dreamlike already. They're already strange. Everything is strange. Everything is already off. So you're watching scenes that by force of habit, we've been trained to see as normal. When I see the scene of the secretary talking to the deputy officer, that's just normal, right? Yeah. This is an in-between scene between the fun parts that where things get a little weird. But he, 
Lynch manages to weird those scenes as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that you're never, ever, ever standing on solid ground, unlike in the X-Files, where there is a kind of baseline that we return to. This is the difference between a writer like Thomas Ligotti and Stephen King. You know, in Stephen King, the small town in Maine has a kind of normalcy, a solidity that is threatened by the external forces that are invading the fictional universe. In Thomas Ligotti, you may begin with that idea, but you quickly find out that there is no normal. There is no little town in Maine. The little town is in a, a screaming void and there's no ground to stand on. So, so yeah. that's what Lynch is doing. And that's what makes uh, Twin Peaks truly weird and truly yeah. disturbing and not for everyone for that reason, because it is a, a, yeah. a destabilizing experience to immerse yourself in this world. It's a practice, you know, watching Twin Peaks carefully, yeah, I find, true. anyways. But you have to buy into the artifice of it. It doesn't do it by convincing you that this is showing you reality. It introduces you to a perspective wherein reality and fiction become indiscernible. Actually, this seems like an instance of something that, on this rewatch, struck me as so pervasive in Lynch, which I might call opacities of reference. Doesn't that sound impressive? So, you know, what you're talking about is almost a technique whereby it's like, uh, okay, we'll give you reality. And it's wacky. And you got people like Dr. Amp with his weird glasses and his golden shovels. It's Twin Peaks. So there's wacky people here. But that is not really asking anything of us that we aren't prepared to grant another show that is now largely forgotten. But it was another sort of like influenced by Twin Peaks show of the time, Northern Exposure. Right. Northern Exposure which my wife enjoyed quite a bit. I didn't watch it so much. So I'm, I'm speaking perhaps in ignorance, but I don't get the impression that Northern Exposure demanded much of its audience, aside from the idea that small town people are quirky. Right. Twin Peaks will come on like that, but then it's kind of subtractive. Like you, you realize that what is being presented to you as reality, or at least a reality, that it is expressing something that is opaque to you, that you know it, but you don't understand it. That's a distinction you made earlier in this conversation, very much in passing between knowing and understanding. Yes. When I say opacities of reference, I'm talking about driving a wedge between knowing and understanding. Let me give you a simpler example, which is when, I forget her name, but a woman who we only ever see at the roadhouse, who James is clearly in love with. Yeah. So James actually gets in a fight with her husband because he wants to say hi to her. And clearly there's some history here. The husband isn't having it and attacks James and Freddie, the man with the green glove, um, beats the ever living fuck out of him. I do like the one punch man thing in this. It's so ridiculous. And yet I'm here for it. <laughs> Same here. But uh, punching Bob to death was ridiculous, but sort of extremely fun. I love that scene. Yeah, me too. There's a scene where... James sings that song we see him singing all the way back in, I guess it was season two, Just You and I. Yeah. Which, by the way, just on a metafictional level, I just about died when I saw that because I have always been a passionately pro-James guy. A lot of Twin Peaks fans think James is the lamest character and they find him singing Just You and I to be the acme 
of his lameness, the, right. the, the tell, the thing that proves that James should never have been the show. And I love the fact that David Lynch is just like, fuck you. <laughs> he just like doubles down on James. Not only do we get James back, we get him singing his song, not only singing his song, but also this girl he's in love with bursts into tears listening to him. Yeah. I love that scene. And there are many scenes in Lynch of people crying to music, like uh, mm -hmm. Frank Booth crying when he, he hears In Dreams in Blue Velvet. The women in uh, Mulholland Drive when they're in the theater uh, with the, yes. the Roy Orbison song. Yeah. 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 Uh, and crying at art is something that happens in real life. We've talked about it, at least on the Patreon. I don't know if we've talked about it in the, the flagship show. But uh, crying at art is something that happens, and it's always weird. There's a whole book about it by a guy named James Elkins, um, really interesting book. And he focuses a lot on just the weirdness of someone crying at art. And one of the things he focuses on is how much the experience of the crier is incommunicable to the person on the other side to, mm -hmm. to the person watching the person crying to watching the person having an experience with art and i bring this up in talking about opacities of references because we see this woman crying at james's song and we hear james's song we we understand that there's a causal connection between the song and the tears but we don't understand it because the song is I mean, it's just you and I. It isn't the greatest song ever, no. let's be real. But even if you thought it was the greatest song ever, would you really understand what complicated aesthetic forms are finding, like a key finding a lock, finding their purchase in this individual's heart? Would you understand that? No, you wouldn't. There's always this level of opacity at what the visible sign refers to. And Lynch applies this on every level of Twin Peaks. In that scene, for instance, we don't know the backstory here. There's obviously a story between this woman and James. We don't know right. it. He gives us the effect without the cause. What we can see, we know without understanding. Because it's a great example of it. But it's just constantly happening in Twin Peaks. Yes. Remember that scene from Mulholland Drive when the mafiosos want to make sure that their girl is cast in the, in the director's movie? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's like, this is the Perfect girl. example. Or when he orders the cappuccino and they, they bring this mafia guy a cappuccino in this Hollywood studio and he drinks one sip and just like regurgitates it, just like spits it out into a <laughs> napkin. It's just like yeah. completely decontextualized things using figures we know. We all know what yeah. a mafioso is like. We know this guy likes his cappuccino. But why does he react this way? What else is going on here? Yeah. In other words, the tropes are there, but they're constantly being deterritorialized out of context such that we get the full effect without ever really understanding where the effect comes from. Uh, and that's what makes it so dreamlike. You know, in a dream, you'll experience something and only as you experience it, do you then contextualize it? Oh, you know, uh, the police are bursting in to my house. You know, they're breaking down the doors. And then you remember, oh, yes, right. I hit a body in the, <laughs> you know, in the basement. <laughs> um, the past comes in to justify the present. Right? Yeah, the, that's right. The past right. appears out of nowhere. And I think David Lynch really works on that, that affect, that feeling, that experience, which we all have when we dream in the mundane everyday scenes of Twin Peaks, which makes them so strange. 
and then when we go from that extraordinary ordinary world into the world of the lodge and these other dimensions they are all the more disorienting and disturbing for it it's like being thrown out of a dream into a nightmare a lot of other filmmakers have tried to make lynchian films but there's an art to what he's doing which i don't think anyone can really replicate I don't really understand how he does it. It's a little bit like what Neil Gaiman was saying about Robert Aikman, which is that it's like seeing a magic trick yeah. that really impresses you. But you not only can you not tell how the trick was pulled off, you don't really know what the trick was. Like you know yeah. it without understanding. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a lot like that. And uh, in fact, I think that Robert Aikman comes pretty close to Lynch in terms of the sensibility yeah. that he evokes, right? Yeah, I strongly agree. Yeah. Um. Uh, yeah, now I'm, I'm just trying to avoid going all the way down this opacities of reference rabbit hole because, yeah, it applies on so many levels. Like, you know, in a dream, I love that you brought up dreams because it is you know, kind of dream logic. In a dream, somebody might present you with something of immense importance that you must keep safe at all costs. And yet the object itself might be something like a, a styrofoam like a, cup. Yeah, or stuffed frog or, right. or something, yeah. <laughs> right? And like, why this? The dream doesn't answer that and your dream self doesn't even think to ask it. But yeah. the object itself comes radioactive, glowing with import, with power, with menace or threat or whatever it is. And objects, even mundane objects, have that kind of power. They might be symbols of something. They might refer to something specific. So like when Cooper is finding his way out of the Black Lodge and he ends up in that sort of mauve zone and he's staring at what look like gigantic sockets in the wall. In retrospect, we understand perfectly well what this is. This is a portal. Yeah. Um, these beings are or work with, are made of and travel along electricity. Yeah. Uh, and so these are portals. It's actually not hard to understand, right? But it's something could manifest in the so-called real world and actually be far more puzzling. I just watched part 18 before we started recording where Cooper or whatever version of Cooper we see at the in that last episode is at Judy's, this roadside diner and disarms three asshole cowboys and then drops their guns in a deep fryer. Very carefully. Yeah. Why? Yeah. <laughs> and then he says, well, I'm not sure if the oil's hot enough for those bullets to go off but you better stay away. <laughs> like, why did you do that? <laughs> I know. It's just, but that's something you'd see in a dream, right? That's something that would feel very necessary in the dream. I must put the guns in the, uh, in yeah. the, the, the oil. And yeah. as a viewer, or for that matter, even as the dreamer, you can know the action, but you can't understand it. And what's strange is in the dream, knowing and understanding don't even appear as a dichotomy, as a dualism. No. Because there's no causal order. There's yeah. no necessary causal order. You don't need to wire your house in your dream in order to have electric light. Yes. The lights will come on and then you might find out that there are no wires in your dream house. You don't need, you know, you yeah. don't need to build a foundation before a house exists in a dream. None of the causal yeah. laws that obtain in reality apply in dreams. And so understanding always presupposes knowledge of causation, which does not exist in that world. And I think what Lynch is suggesting here is a world that is fundamentally a causal in the weirdest way, not just in those sequences that take place in a dream landscape, but across the board. 
And mm. so this would make Twin Peaks a kind of deep exploration of what I consider to be the thing about the weird that makes it so compelling, which is that it suggests uh, an ontological strangeness that goes to the bottom of things, such yep. that no understanding can be any more than narratively convenient. <laughs> you can understand <laughs> things if it works within a story, but there's no ultimate understanding. There's no ultimate yeah. understanding of what is going on. Uh, the radical mystery is absolute. I find that to be in line with what Lynch suggests in this show. At least that's my interpretation of it. One way of expressing that strange wedge that Lynch is constantly driving between knowing and understanding is to use language that I think we adapted early on in our conversations from Manuel Delanda between something being significant and something being significative. Yes. So significance supervenes on signification. Like something yeah. is significant if it has a clear and discernible, understandable signification, right? Yeah. 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 I'll let you unpack that. But. Let me open this thing up because I, I did a little chart in uh, my Diviner's Time essay. This is late style. I can't keep my fucking thoughts in order, so I need to look at my notes. <laughs> fucking lame. So... As I understand it, Delanda points out that there's two ways something can be meaningful. It can be significant and it can be significative. A signification is a matter of language. A sign signals something like a red octagonal sign at an intersection means stop. The significance, on the other hand, as opposed to signification, is a felt sense of meaningfulness. And it isn't necessarily linguistic. What we normally think of as meaning is something that is both significative and significant, uh, something that conveys a verbalizable proposition, but also conveys that felt sense of meaningfulness. Yeah. So, for example, when I'm, when I'm walking down the street, the stop sign is significative in the sense that it signifies yeah. stop, but it doesn't mean anything to me. It's not significant yeah. to me. I'm not driving a car. I yeah. just pass by it. Or, you know, there's like a million of those things in my neighborhood. There's a stop sign on every corner. And so, like, no one stop sign is particularly significant to me. Right. Unless that is the stop sign that I didn't stop at and I got in a car accident and now my car is totaled. Like, all of a sudden, that intersection is going to be significant to me for a long time and in ways that have nothing to do with the propositional meaning of, of a stop sign, right? Or at least loosely connected with it. Anyway, what Lynch does very often is he drains his symbols or his, like the objects in narrative, he drains them of their signification. Yes. But he supercharges them with that meaningfulness or value, that significance the and he does this on multiple levels too. Sorry, you were going to say no. The, the, the scene, the, no, just to say the the scene with uh, James singing his song and the woman in the in the audience crying is a perfect example of that. And he does it on enormous scale at times. So, for example, one of the things that was sort of controversial with old fans of the show was how he handled Audrey. So Audrey Horn comes back, yeah, starting quite late, and. People complained because her story didn't seem to go anywhere or refer to anything. So it almost all happens in what we take to be her house that she shares with her husband, Charlie, this very odd looking fellow. And she has a lot of anger and animosity towards Charlie, but we don't know why. 
No. Uh, she's constantly insulting him and hackling him. She at one point looks at him with disgust and a look of almost like a revelation of disgust. And she says something like, I've never seen this before. I saw you, but I've never understood it. And yet we don't know what she's looking at. We have no context for this. We have no history. And it's not just that conversation. Every time we return to their story, their thread, there's this pileup of detail. More and more names keep being added. They're looking for Billy, but to find Billy, she has to talk to Tina. And you know how I fucking hate Tina. Yeah. And Tina was talking to, and it goes on and on. And I remember people were complaining, like, all of these fucking names, all these fucking details of a story. We never learn what the story is, and it never goes anywhere. Why are you wasting Audrey, such a great character? On this bullshit, opaque story that isn't even really a story. Like, it isn't a story. It's like a story that we overhear in an elevator. It has no bearing on our lives or, you know, like it feels like nothing happens with Audrey has a bearing on Twin Peaks, at least until maybe we get to the end of it. But in this case, again, there's lots of words, but we're draining meaning out of them. And we are putting it all on the significance of this, that feeling of of dread and foreboding and confusion and what the fuck is even happening. Actually, the connection of Audrey's story to the main story of Twin Peaks is not through causal logic, but through synchronicity. Right. It is connected, but the connections are a-causal. So when she says... To Charlie, like, is this, what story is that, Charlie? Is this the story of the little girl who lives down the lane? Sounds like just another one of her throwaway mocking lines, but then the fucking arm says it. Yeah. In part 18. That's right. You know, we want to find a meaning of that. What does that mean? It might just mean the repetition of the phrase, loaded with significance, but drained of signification. Right. And the whole story arc is built that way. So this is what I mean when I say he's doing this on multiple levels. Yes, I agree. That's a wonderful example. And and I mean, you could look at many of the subplots. I mean, for example, we were talking about um, Jacoby, the, the YouTuber. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Amp. And his whole story also doesn't seem to quite connect. Or um, Ben Horn's brother, Jerry who ends yeah. up getting lost and wandering about throughout the entire series until he just happens to witness the death of Richard Horn. And then we, we hear about him, we never see him again. Like there's all of these kind of loose ends, but at the synchronistic level, you can feel, it's not, you can't understand it, but you can feel, you can know, yes. you can see this lattice work of meaning mm-hmm. um, connecting everything. Another great example of significance without signification, an almost kind of literal example of it, happens in Fire Walk With Me when uh, Laura Palmer is in bed. She kind of wakes up, she turns around, there's a, a, a dead girl lying beside her, you know, like bloodied and wet mm-hmm. and like a corpse. And th- this corpse turns to her and tells her about Cooper, the good Cooper and the bad Cooper, right? Yeah. And then Laura just listens to her, then turns around. And then you can see her come to some kind of realization. Then she turns and there's nobody in the bed. And that's when the horror music comes in and the horror, you know, and it's like, and it actually is really chilling that this corpse is no longer in the bed, but it's like, it's the absence of something that is giving you the the significance. This is classic dream logic, right? 
Um, yeah. You turn, you see something really strange, you don't react to it, you turn it and it's not there anymore and suddenly you're scared. Uh, but that's, yeah. that's, it's playing with this a-causal depth uh, from which meaning arises using channels that have nothing to do with language and propositional thought at all. Completely different level of meaning, which is what we were on about all the time when we talk about reality being unable to do anything but create more meaning. It, you know, <laughs> like the idea that you can strip reality of its meaning and then look at it bare, naked before you, and then write something like Thomas Ligotti's Conspiracy Against the Human Race. And, and, and yeah, vouch. that that'll be a kind of gnosis. Yeah. The, that, that's how you get to truth is through a subtraction. Yeah, because this discovery of utter nihilism, which I do think is a real affect, like a, it's, a, it's truly available, right? is itself, of course, laden with significance. <laughs> um, hence the books that are written in that idiom. Uh, it's significant that nothing means anything. In other words, there's another type of meaning here, which we really need to talk about, that has nothing to do with the meaning that nihilists are looking for in the world. Because even their failure to find that type of meaning gives them a, a primordial meaning that allows them to, to build a coherent philosophy of nihilism around it. There's just no escaping this type of weird meaning. But it's not something you can put in language. It's, it's something we know. We all know it. Even the most antinatalist, nihilist person on this planet knows it. But nobody understands it.
So you just used the word nihilism. And earlier this week, when you were finishing your rewatch, we conversed briefly and you, you talked about part 18 and you were like, man, that is just so nihilistic. And I was wondering if you were speaking loosely, like, yeah, that's some heavy shit. That's one way that we use the word nihilistic. Or do you actually mean that it's nihilistic? I'm glad you asked that because on one level, I would say that the last episode is indeed nihilistic. It is presenting us with a nihilistic universe. But Cooper responds to it with his final line, what year is this? In other words, indicating that he will not give up. He will continue yeah. to look for the light. But I do yeah. think that the show basically puts the question to us. It's saying, this is what the world is like. How do you respond? And it doesn't give you an answer. It doesn't give us the, you know, what Ligotti once referred to as the treacle dripping endings of other David Lynch films. It, it basically leaves us in a place where it's up to us. We're all in Cooper's position, lost in a dream and not knowing who the yeah. dreamer is and having to act from that unknowing. And so yeah. I would say that it, it presents to us a universe that feels nihilistic, but it never falls into a kind of didacticism where it would tell us that the world is nihilistic. So that's not, yeah. So I mean both. It's some heavy shit. It is. Cooper is defeated, or at the very least, something very bad is happening at the end. And we don't understand it, but we know it. Yes. And who the hell knows if Cooper's going to prevail? Who the hell knows? I mean, it's like this is doing a thing where all of the converging lines finally converge at a point just after the end of this show. Like we see that converging towards something. Something is about to happen, but we are not privileged to see what it is. And I had the strong feeling that win or lose, Cooper, like a, an Arthurian knight or something, his vow, his destiny is always to charge into the next affray, always to keep trying to keep running, to keep chasing the good that he has sworn to serve. I remember we brought that up with Tamler when Tamler was in the show and we were talking about Firewalk with me and he kind of poo-pooed that idea, as I recall, though I haven't re-listened to that episode. And re-watching it, I'm like, no, I think I'm right. Yeah. That doesn't say anything about whether Cooper was wise or right to execute the plan that he's executing, which we never really understand. We know there's a plan. Well, we know that he was trying to take Laura out yes. to save Laura yeah. back in time so that she never but got we murdered. Have, but this is yeah. another opacity. We have no way of knowing whether the plan is actually working. You're right. We know that David Lynch's character, Gordon Cole, says in an earlier episode that the ultimate goal of the plan is to find Judy. And Judy yes. is this malevolent, demonic force behind all of the forces and figures at the, of the Black Lodge, etc. So they're trying to find her. And so mm -hmm. my deduction is that Cooper's attempt to save Laura is part of this plan, the ultimate goal of which is to find Judy, not to save Laura. They're trying to find Judy. And at the very, very, very end, the show ends with Laura Palmer, who is now someone else, standing in front of her old house. Somebody else lives there. For all we can see, the Palmers never lived in that house. They're in a completely different parallel universe. Cooper is completely at a loss, doesn't know what's going on. And then Laura Palmer's new incarnation, I can't remember her name. Do you remember her name? Carrie Page. 
Carrie Page is looking at the house and suddenly we overhear the voice of Laura Palma's mother calling Laura. Right. And then Carrie Page lets out the most soul rending scream I've ever heard in a film. And that's how it ends. And the lights go out. Is that Judy? There are indications yeah. that Sarah Palmer, Laura Palmer's mother, is the little girl uh, that we see in episode eight. Consuming the frog moth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's possible that she was Judy all along. And so and that means Cooper has succeeded. He's found Judy. Now, what happens next? We don't know. As you say, the point of convergence is after things fade to black. Off screen. But I do want to say, in Tamler's defense, that I found something this time around that really, really troubled me. And this was in episode 17, when they finally defeat Bob and evil Coop. So Mr. C is dead. Bob comes out of him. And then the guy with the green glove kicks Bob's ass and then everything's fine. Then we have this almost kind of like really kind of soapy, like Sunday night movie kind of thing where all the characters yeah. are gathered. But then suddenly superimposed on this cliche maudlin, you know, happy ending, we have the image of Cooper, just his face looking absolutely horrified. And it's superimposed on this scene. The way I interpreted this time around was that this is the moment where Cooper realizes that he was Mr. C as well as Dougie, that both of the evil and the good Coop are both him. And therefore that he sexually assaulted Diane, which is why when Diane and Cooper have sex in the next episode, she eventually blocks his face and can't look at him and disappears in the morning. And he has to come to terms with the fact that everything Mr. C did, everything the evil Coop did, he has to own as part of him. And so that adds a note of anti-heroic darkness to his, oh, absolutely. to his thread that I feel explains who we see in the last episode. Is this yes. Cooper? Is this, yeah. So it's like- I had the same feeling on this rewatch. And in fact, I noticed on this rewatch, do you know exactly when that face appears behind the happy ending scene? It's when he kisses Diane. It's, yeah, it's when he sees Diane. Right. And uh, or when she's still the eyeless Naido, I think you're right. At the very least, I find that a very compelling argument. Just this morning, I found an interview with Kyle McLaughlin where he was being asked about the character of Coop. And this is from a Vanity Fair article that was published June 14th, 2018. Uh, McLaughlin said, quote, I was never sure whether or not our man, our Cooper, is conscious of the fact that he is now altered. He's talking about Coop as he appears in that last part, in part 18, because he and Diane go through this portal and they're very conscious. Like, you know, it'll all be different when we're on the other side. And the question is, of course, do they know that they're not the same person? And so that's what McLaughlin's talking about. I was never sure whether or not our man, our Cooper, is conscious of the fact he is now altered. He'll do whatever it takes to bring balance back to the world. I think he launches himself into this universe without much of a tether, and he just trusts that he will be able to find his way back. And that willingness to launch into the world without a tether, and also the trust that somehow I can find my way, that to me is the core of Cooper's heroism. That is why he is a heroic figure, not because he saves the day or always does the right thing. You're quite right. One of the greatest gifts we got from the third season was that Cooper was no longer the thumbs up, right. damn good coffee, cherry pie guy. We got to see just how ruthlessly effective he was because when Mr. C is out there murdering 
and manipulating. He's using Cooper's skill to do it. That's Cooper. Yeah. And in part 18, just as you say, like all of this development allows us to kind of understand the Cooper we see in part 18 as a kind of distillation of a certain part of him. When he beats down those asshole cowboys at Judy's diner, we see he's working for the FBI. He knows he's in the FBI. He knows he's trying to bring balance to the cosmos. He knows he's on a mission of good. And yet he acts exactly like Mr. C, the same cold, exactly uh, cold, like, like when the waitress pours some coffee, he doesn't say thank you. I was noticing a lot of things like that, that Mr. C, the kinds of things he says, he never says anything except to get something done or to threaten, but even his threats are just to get things done. Cooper in 18 is that Cooper. Yeah. And you realize all of these things, the sweetness of Dougie Coop, but also the incredible malevolence of Mr. C, that's all Cooper. We get to understand Cooper as this thoroughly rounded character through the surreal expedient of breaking him into three or four parts. Exactly. Beautifully said. And I think that that goes right to the heart of David Lynch's oeuvre in general. If one were to extract a moral from David Lynch, it's most uh, beautifully exemplified at the very beginning of Blue Velvet, where you're seeing this pristine pastoral suburban world, and suddenly the camera sinks down under the lawn and you see a world writhing with maggots and insects and bugs. So the idea is that the ordinary world, the world we see on CNN, the world we see if we look just briefly glance out the window at our nice little neighborhood, if you happen to live in a nice neighborhood. Um, The world that we like to pretend we live in is a facade. Behind this facade is a darkness that we refuse to see. The same applies introspectively. The person we think we are is a facade Behind the facade is something we do not want to see. It goes both ways. So you have a kind of like film of illusory normalcy on either side of which is just these vast depths, these vast dark depths that are inherently frightening. They are instantiations of what you call the fear, capital T-H-E-F-E-A-R. And the moral, if there is one, is to look there. Yes. To look under the lawn, to look inside oneself. And yeah, I agree. What happens in that terrible scene in episode 17, where you see Cooper's look of total abject guilt and horror superimposed on the moment where he's reunited with the love of his life, that is the feeling of individuation. That is the feeling of looking into the depths. Uh, mm. and, and it's a huge ask. But if there's anything that might improve the world, you know, anything that might redeem the late work, the late style of David Lynch, it would be a sustained effort on the part of, let's say, a critical mass of people to perform this gesture, to look inside, to look behind, to face the darkness we all refuse to see. It seems that all of the violence and horror of history and this entire Twin Peaks universe is predicated on the horror of the nuclear bomb. Right? The nuclear bomb was a manifestation of those forces which we refuse to see. This is Jung, I guess, to a T, but salvation lies in our looking where we don't want to look. And I think that that's kind of the message of Twin Peaks. It's the message of Lynch in general. It's what I yes. find so redeeming in his work and so unnihilistic. 
I am so glad you said that because there's a feeling I had on this rewatch. I mean, this is a feeling I get with Lynch generally and have for as long as I've been meditating, but the feeling of like, this is art by somebody who meditates. Right. You can kind of tell in a way, or maybe you can't. Maybe I only think that because I meditate and I know Lynch does. And so I'm seeing what I want to see. But like, that is a morality. The morality of a meditator is the willingness to see, the willingness to look. I was talking about the heroism of Coop being a heroism of somebody who goes into the world untethered and does so anyway because that's the mission. That's his fucking job as an FBI agent and has faith that when I come to the crisis, I'll know what to do. Uh, I have to have that faith or I'll never go on my adventures. I'll never leave the house, right? Well, that also is the heroism of the meditator, which is one of the quieter forms of heroism. It doesn't look like much. It just looks like somebody sitting on the floor is what it looks like. I suspect that a lot of non-meditators look at meditators and think, well, what a lot of unproductive wasting of time just sitting there contemplating your navel. What are you doing for the betterment of mankind? Are you volunteering at a soup kitchen? Are you finding the cure for cancer? These, of course, are marvelous and meritorious things. But no, what you're doing is you are engaged in very much the same kind of activity that Coop is that we see Coop doing in the last couple of parts of Twin Peaks Season 3, you are launched into a kind of inner spelunking, going down into the dark, dark depths. I remember hearing someone, actually, I think my old student, Carrie O'Brien, once told me that um, there was some study done showing that those surveyed, the majority of them would prefer a small electric shock to being forced to simply be left alone with their thoughts with nothing to do. Um, mm -hmm. In other words, meditation, which is interesting. There is something about meditation that is a harrowing ordeal, a journey into your darkness where you can't look away because it's the only thing to look at. And yet, at the same time, I'm painting it in very dark goth colors. In truth, what you get in meditation is the whole ball of wax, all the darkness and all the light that is in existence. And perhaps this is looping back to what I said about, uh, about late style, the unintegrated view of wholeness, holding in suspension all the unintegrated shards, the, the, the painful, biting, broken pieces of existence, holding them in suspension. That is what one does in meditation as well. And facing the whole ball of wax is an ordeal. And it's also a great delight and privilege. It's all of those things. But that kind of introspection does. I, I like what you said because it sets up that kind of introspection as something that is difficult. Not because your ass and legs fall asleep after 20 minutes on the cushion or whatever but because it is just so hard to face that darkness and yet to find the light, it's the one thing we have to do. It, it, the question, of course, that people will ask is, is it safe? And I think it's fairly clear from what you just said that it is not safe. Nope. It is the furthest thing from safe. But you know, in the Christian tradition, there's the word martyr. The word martyr comes from the Greek witness. And... Uh, hmm. There is a sense in which 
a true witnessing of the real occasions a kind of martyrdom. Something in you must die for something in you to be born. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.